I have a guy with me today. He's a fellow retired police sergeant. He's a police trainer. And now he's a filmmaker with some really interesting projects uh, in, that he's done in the past and some new ones in the works. Jason Harney, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Betsy. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to talk right away about a, a project that I know is, is absolutely close to your heart. It's close to mine as well. And that is a, a film called The Wounded Blue. And it uh, talk about how you got involved in making The Wounded Blue. Well, it, it was a it was a great opportunity uh, from a from a very good friend of mine, Randy Sutton. We both work for the same uh, agency, Las Vegas Metro Police. Retired from the same, and uh, Randy knew after we had both been retired that I had gone into uh, filmmaking, uh, making documentary films. And he was in the early stages at the time. This was uh, probably around mid mid twenty eighteen. Uh, to creating his uh, national assistance organization for injured and disabled police officers, the Wounded Blue. And, uh, you know, as he explained it to me, just sitting down for coffee one day, he wanted to have a documentary that would show the stories as to how he was inspired to create the organization. He was flooded for years with Facebook messages and, you know, just these heartfelt stories about police officers who ultimately were not being taken care of uh, by their agencies after being involved in critical incidents such as shootings, traffic accidents, and the multitude of, of uh, issues that cops face where they could find themselves uh, either injured, disabled, or mentally comp compromised in some fashion. Um, and he wanted to do something about it and, and thought that a really good way to start the organization would be to show people why and, and have that tool at his disposal. So that's uh, how the Wounded Blue film came into play. We, we uh, spent uh, the majority of uh, the rest of 2018 going into 2019 traveling around the country and uh, meeting with police officers who inspired the organization to be created. And then that uh, is how the film was made. So this film, if you haven't seen it, is just absolutely incredible. And in fact, uh, it's won numerous awards. Even the film's trailer has uh, won awards. And so I wanna play just a couple minutes of that trailer. It's a weekly, daily, and monthly challenge of, of what we're gonna ju juggle how to, how to get the bills paid. Uh, how, how to even uh, put food on the table. We have three boys. Craig was injured in a shooting. He didn't die that day, and you couldn't see his injuries, but he died from those injuries. So my motto since the beginning is not one more, but no one should die from PTSD. What good is it to teach us how to survive on these streets and until we get home and everything falls to crap and we don't know what's happening to us and we don't know what to do about it. Our families are falling, our families are struggling, my kids are crying because nobody told me that I'm supposed to be still fighting here. There are times when for no reason I'll just start crying um, or I'll get into a rage no reason. Um, there are times when I wake up at night screaming and I can smell gunpowder, I can smell blood. 
I felt like as long as I could come back to work, I was useful to the department. I, th they could use me. The minute I couldn't, even though it was work-related, throw them away. They've given everything they can up to the edge of their life. And what they do have left of a life is compromised because of what they've given. This is taking place all over America. This is a national tragedy. This is something that is, that is not known within the American public. It is not even known oftentimes within law enforcement circles itself. Well, guess what? I am you. And I have post-traumatic stress disorder. So, Jason, that is, uh, every time I watch that trailer, and I've watched it 50 times, um, I just get so choked up. It's so emotional. And the whole film is like that. And I don't think people really understand that so very often when police officers get hurt, or like you said, they get mentally compromised from, uh, you know, either one critical incident or accumulation of critical incidents, that their police department doesn't always take care of them, do they? They don't, and and uh, you know I, I uh, fall into that that same uh, category. Uh, you know, previously I I worked for a, what I consider a very great agency, one that was progressive, uh, did the right thing more often than not, uh, considering the entire agency and and the uh, wellness of our cops. Uh, we had a police employees assistance assistance program, short for PEEP. Um, that, uh, you know, was the peer counseling that is uh, talked about by the Wounded Blue, something that I took for granted. That was available to us in the early 1990s. Uh, come to find out, uh, the majority of police departments in this country still don't have peer counseling, which is why the Wounded Blue has a national assistance uh, organization, as a national assistance organization, has its own peer team that responds 24-7 because you have cops that are either suffering from cumulative trauma from these various incidents over a period of years, or they're involved in a critical incident that, you know, bottom line is they need to talk to somebody who has been through what they've been through. It's not always, you know, uh, uh, feasible to speak with your spouse or, or significant other about something like that. You need to talk to somebody who has been there, who can calm you and make sure you know above and beyond that you are not alone. And, you know, that's, that's really the thing that the, the film really hammers home is that these these cops, I mean, they were in horrible situations to where one one uh, Anne Marie Carrizales is involved in a shooting uh, one day, the next payday, she doesn't get paid because she's sent into this broken workers comp system. Or you have another officer, Charles Neal, who's in, involved in a terrible crash when, when a group of, uh, of cartel assassins were on the way to Kansas City to assassinate a judge. And he happened to stop them in a traffic stop in Oklahoma. And when they fled and he chased them, he was taking automatic uh, rifle fire and ultimately was shot in the head, got in a terrible crash. Well, guess what his agency did? Not only did he lose his entire paycheck, but he now had to sell his house, his cars, and couldn't put food in, uh, on the table for his family. And he has three boys. So, uh, terrible circumstances for these cops, these heroes, and these heroic actions involved in, and yet their agencies were not taking care of them. Now, granted, the vast majority of uh, agencies are 50, 50 officers or smaller. I believe it's about 80% of all the agencies in this 
what, about 18,000 plus in this country. Yes. Um, they just don't have the budgets, the wherewithal, the infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, to be able to take care of these cops when they inevitably are involved in these incidents. And it's very sad to see. Now, Jason, you're not just a, a guy who makes films and you just you happen upon this. Um, you're a veteran and uh, and you're also a retired police sergeant. Um, Talk for a minute about your police career, because you you did you did a lot of different things during your law enforcement career. Well, you know, certainly uh, no different than anybody else. You know, all, all of our brothers and sisters, you know, who, who have had that opportunity to uh, serve their communities as a member of a police agency. Uh, you end up doing uh, a, a lot of different things. And I was blessed to have worked for a large agency, which meant you had the uh, ability to move around if you wanted to every uh, every couple of years. So yeah, I worked in you know patrol, did field training, and and uh, uh, worked bike patrol on the strip and downtown. Um, but you know one of the one of the best assignments I ever had is I became a training and counseling officer in our police academy. Uh, was there in the late 1990s. Went on to be a robbery detective, and then spent my last 13 or 14 years on the department as a police sergeant, and went to all of those units basically all over again, including becoming the academy sergeant and. Uh, yeah, near and dear to my heart, without a doubt, when it came to my police career was the training aspect and being a law enforcement trainer and, and, and taking that, you know, seriously to the point where you do want to be the best, you want to be the most proficient, the most tactically sound, the most physically fit. And, you know, that's kind of how I modeled uh, myself and, and you know, uh, followed a lot of really good mentors that uh, set the example for me long before me. So how did you make this transition into filmmaking? Well, I am that, uh, you know, that just that garden variety uh, movie nut that you hear about, you know, the, the, the one who can quote every movie, you know, back going back for, you know, my era and uh, always really interested in filmmaking. And, and this started long before I had ever left. I mean, a lot of cops will, will have, have certain passions that are outside of their job. I always recommend that. I don't think you want police to be what you live and breathe. It's your profession. You take it seriously as a profession, but you need something to kind of let you decompress, be it what it may. Some, some cops like to hunt and fish and, 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 you know, play golf and do those kinds of things. I was just, you know, learning everything I could about filmmaking. And I had uh, uh, some people who worked in the video production unit at Las Vegas Metro at the time in the late 90s, who actually, when I worked at the academy, they were in the same building. So in all my off time, my weekends, I spent with them going and doing film shoots uh, for things they were producing for the agency, uh, whether it be a training video or a PSA or something for the sheriff's office. And, uh, you know, that's how I learned the te technical aspect of it. And I opened a production company in 2003, started doing like smaller projects that you could still get done when you're working 40 hours a week, like, you know, small commercials, corporate videos, training, stuff like that, with the idea that when I finally retired, you know, 25 years later, that I would uh, make feature films because they're very full time and time consuming. And, you know, that's where I'm at now. Now, you had a documentary project, too, um, called Voices of the Blue. Talk about that a minute, because that's another thing that I think gosh, everyone in this country who supports law enforcement needs to see. I certainly agree. And, and that's, that's again, very, a very tough nut to crack. I mean, um, why are people not seeing law enforcement content? Well, I certainly don't need to explain that to you because I know above and you, you certainly understand. I mean, you, you're dealing with an algorithm that I believe, you know, sways people away 
from those types of, of uh, things that are deemed, I guess, pro-police. I mean, in this case, Voices of the Blue, kind of a, a, a sort of sequel to the Wounded Blue film, but it's a six-part docu-series that takes a much deeper dive into other stories about officers who suffer from post-traumatic stress, uh, who you know ha have contemplated suicide, uh, and, and who have had issues with that cumulative trauma, you know, running the gamut from people in California all the way to the East Coast and everywhere in between. Again, myself and Randy Sutton, we traveled the country and talked to these cops. And you know, when you do that you begin to understand just how nationwide this problem is. You know, Randy will call it a national tragedy, as he says in the film. Uh, he couldn't be more correct. It, it is, it's extremely tragic because, you know, it just reminds me of, of the way, you know, it took us forever as a, as a country, as a society, to really learn we have to take care of our veterans, right? You know, starting probably into the early world wars, but Vietnam, you know, more specifically when they were coming back and the way they were treated, uh, it took a long time to embrace uh, the condition of post-traumatic stress and that when you are put in a place of, say, the theater of war and you're going to see terrible things, the bottom line is uh, some people are going to react differently, but you're not going to come back the person you were. It's going to change you, and it could be for the worse if you don't get help. Well, if, whether you're firing around at somebody in Afghanistan or Iraq or you do that in Philadelphia, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, you know, somewhere in Texas, it doesn't matter. You're still gonna have the same nightmares. It's still gonna have the same mental effect and you still need to get help. So the question is, are these agencies doing enough? And that is what the Voices of the Blue docu-series, you know, which is can, anyone can watch for free on YouTube, is uh, sets out to kind of answer those questions and, and figure out just what are the solutions. One of the things about law enforcement and our communities as well, we do a really good job of burying our dead and honoring our fallen. We don't necessarily do a great job of continuing to honor those that are catastrophically wounded in the line of duty. And, and so, you know, you have this, you have Voices of the Blue, you have um, the Wounded Blue, uh, you know, documentary, and yet you're having a hard time getting those projects out to people, even though they're, they're completely available. And part of it is social media is a problem, right? Um, we talk a lot about a big tech tyranny um, and it's true, right? With Facebook and Twitter, getting some of this pro law enforcement content, YouTube out there, isn't it? Well, certainly one of your last guests on the show, Ray Dietrich, explained that perfectly. And, and from his own experience, it, it is truly sad. And, and to a certain extent, yes, uh, I have no doubt that, you know, uh, my films uh, that are pro-law enforcement and are meant to tell, you know, both the positive stories about law enforcement that the mainstream media ignores, as well as the address the critical issues that law enforcement faces that the mainstream media also tends to ignore. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure they don't fit that algorithm that big, big tech wants, uh, you know, that will sway people to watch these, uh, these both these films and, and uh, the docu-series that we put on YouTube. It, it has been very frustrating. Now, Jason, you're involved in the, right now in the middle of, a, of another film project that, uh, that I want you to talk about for a minute because it's, it's, it's really, it's different and it's exciting. So let's talk about that a minute. 
Well, you know, as you know, you know, you've been a longtime police trainer yourself. And, and, and so, you know, when you when you hear about some of these training issues, it, it's really preaching to the choir. As trainers, we're that rare breed that, that certainly um, believes at a, in a certain level of police training. So this film, if you think about it, uh, all the defensive tactics and use of force training the police officers taught in this country, every single tactic uh, to every technique has lineage to the martial arts. Well, you think about your average martial artist, just through perception of what general knowledge will lead you to believe, that they are disciplined, that they are proficient, that they are dedicated, typically physically fit, mentally sound. They have confidence in what they're doing. Why do they have that confidence? Well, because they practice. They've practiced for decades upon decades. But if we're saying that every technique cops are taught has lineage to martial arts, do any of the attributes I just described remind you of most of the cops in this country? Probably not, and, and, and it's not their fault. It's a culture issue. It is a culture issue where as a profession, I believe that we have failed mightily to ensure that police officers know as part of their profession, they need to stay proficient in these tactics. You know, um, Why do we have situations like we did outside Minneapolis a month ago where you know a very veteran officer uh, believes that she is pulling her taser, but pulls her gun. Well, as a trainer, the first thing you come to think of is, well, how much practice has she had in, you know, trans transferring from tool to tool on that belt? How often have you done that in a training environment? How much stress and realism has been put into that training environment? It's a national problem. So this film is going to talk to people who are both high level martial artists, but also retired police officers and police trainers who can weigh in on those issues. Do we need national defensive tactics standards instead of 18,000 different ones? How do we get police officers to, or police agencies to create a culture that ultimately says, hey, from this point on, you need to know that your training is number one. I would go, I mean, we work 10 hour shifts on my agency. I would even go as far as to say that one 10 hour day per week should be dedicated to training, period. But when we talk about defunding the police, we know, and, and you know, uh, this was just mentioned on your last program as well, that the first place they cut is training. Well, is it any surprise as to why we have a lot of cops that are out of practice, grossly out of shape? I'm sure you're aware that, you know, unfortunately we have the dubious distinction as a profession of being the most obese workforce in the entire country at about 41%, which is far and away the worst of any workforce. Uh, you know, it, it's just, we want to talk about those issues and bring them to the forefront and, and really hopefully get not the police side, but the mainstream side to understand even the people we deem on the left or the right to get the idea that you need to invest capital into these police departments and get them to be better trained. That's what this film will be about. I am so excited about this film. I can't wait till it comes out. Where can people uh, find you on social media? Where can they find your films, Jason? Well, uh, my website, lightningdigitalentertainment.com certainly has uh, official site pages for all of my films with trailers and information on where you can either rent or purchase and in some cases watch them for free. Um, on social media, not the biggest fan of social media, but I do have a Twitter account. It's at Jason Harney 72. 
And I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me there where for the most part, things remain non-political and quite professional, which I like. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, you know, it's like one of those things where you just, you just got to kind of <clears throat> try to put that information out there and, and hope that people, the right people see it and, and, and follow that cause. And, and when it comes to pro-police content, I have to tell you, Betsy, it's an uphill climb. I know you know that it's very difficult, uh, but I'm hoping that, you know, the more eyeballs we get on this stuff, maybe we can start to change those narratives. Maybe we can even get the mainstream media to start to understand uh, and realize that, uh, you know, we need our cops here. I, I always tell people, you know, if you want to see what a world it would be like, and I'm not kidding about this, without police, watch a couple seasons of The Walking Dead. Because, I mean, in all seriousness, we would just be a bunch of gangs running around pillaging off of each other. And, and that's the world that we would have. We both know that's just complete, you know, silly talk. And, and it, it's not something that's probably going to happen despite the efforts of certain people. Uh, but I think as a, prof uh, as a profession, we can continue to do better. We have to evolve and become something more along the lines of what people actually perceive. No, we can't kick everybody's ass. No, we're not superheroes, uh, <clears throat> but we can still be better. We can be more proficient, more physically fit. And I do believe it all starts with creating that culture. Jason Harney, we really appreciate you spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. This year, over 50,000 law enforcement officers have been assaulted while on duty. A vast number of these attacks were filmed and uploaded to social media in the pursuit of likes and attention. What they want to do is film you instead of like, what can I do to help this officer? Together, we can change this disturbing trend. If that individual would have hit the right spot, you know, it, it could have been it for me. You know, last time I would have saw my wife, my kids. I'm Mike Solon. Law enforcement officers need your support. If you see an officer under attack, then follow these simple steps in order to help. 1. Call 911 and give the officer's exact location. 2. Ask the officer if you can assist. If the officer accepts, then do whatever you can do to safely help. 3. If the officer declines, then start filming and be a good witness. It's time to stop filming and start helping.